the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Tired of the negative news and flash over substance? It's time for Today with Dr. Wendy. Dr. Wendy Patrick is a trial attorney, patriot, and Ph.D. with a passion for people and a penchant for politics. Dr. Wendy brings you the headlines, streamlined, news you can use. It's time to be informed, engaged, and entertained. Now, here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick and my co-host Larry Dersham and I, as usual, we're combing the news, looking for interesting stories. And what we really found for tonight are two very interesting guests, uh, the first of whom I believe joined us maybe two years ago. But Larry, we have somebody very special on the line for our first guest. Who is our first headliner? Yeah, absolutely, Wendy. Yeah, we're so fortunate to have Kurt Schlichter. He's a senior columnist for townhall.com. He's a Los Angeles trial lawyer and a retired Army infantry colonel, a Twitter activist with more than 350,000 followers. Kurt was personally recruited to write conservative commentary by Andrew Breitbart. He is a news source, an open screen commentator on networks like Fox and Newsmax, and a guest and a guest host of nationally syndicated radio programs talking about political, military, and legal topics. And he's here today to discuss his new book, just hot off the presses. It's called We'll Be Back. The Fall and Rise of America. So pleased to have you on today, Kurt. Oh, I am so glad to be on with you guys. But you guys are San Diego folks, so I need to ask you a question before we can proceed. Go ahead. <laughs> Albertos or Robertos? Because that, that, that tells me everything I need to know. Ooh, I think, Larry, you eat Mexican food more than I do. I do. Uh, don't, I hope I don't get in trouble with you, Kurt. Uh, I'm going to go with Albertos. Excellent, excellent call. Although I, I, I'm, down, I'm not down on Roberto's. Sustain me through four years of UCSD. But it's important Amen. that we establish the basics of uh, quality Mexican food, which is one of the things I bonded with Andrew Breitbart over about 13 years ago. Fantastic. Well, you know, that's interesting because Larry's favorite food is pizza. So if you ever want to grab a good pizza, he would be the one to be able to tell you off the top of his head. He could probably even tell you the phone number or email address uh, to his favorite places. So. You know, what, one of the things I uh, always want uh, to ask you about, because I see you everywhere, I hear your stuff, I love your voice, you've got a great voice. Um, one of the things that I wondered is, where in the world do you find the time to write books? Because between your appearances and all the rest of the great work you do and writing columns, um, trying cases, I mean, one thing that writing really requires is that deep concentration for sustained periods of time. At least that's what most writers say. How do you do it? And what led you to be inspired to write this latest book? Well, look, I've always, I've always been kind of a writer ever since I was fourth grade and up in San Mateo and my teacher sent in something <laughs> to the San Mateo Times and they published it. 
Uh, I never thought of writing as work because I'm an essentially lazy guy. Writing is just a manual, <laughs> manually uh, copying down what's going on in, in my head. So, I mean, you know, in a way, I kind of feel like it's a giant scam because I enjoy it so much. Where it's my novels, uh, because I write conservative action novels also, bestsellers. And I write, uh, you know, I write nonfiction like We'll Be Back, The Fallen Rise of America. Uh, I write it in my head and I just kind of transcribe it. So, you know, people ask me about my process. I really don't have one. I'm just uh, excited that I, uh, you know, get to make a living doing something that, uh, you know, doesn't really make me sweat. Well, hey, Kurt, I'm going to ask you a question about your latest book that just came out this week. Uh, we'll be back. How did we go from being such a powerful nation, as was exemplified by our swift defeat, in fact, it was in a matter of days, of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, who had one of the world's largest armies, to now, to 30 years later, being chased out of Afghanistan in a humiliating route by a ragtag group called the Taliban. How did that happen? Well, look, I, I, I was there. I was there at the time and place of the pinnacle of American power. I didn't realize it then. I was at the 7th Corps Main Command Post. Uh, uh, you know, I didn't have, like, an exciting job. I, I washed trucks, essentially. I ran a heavily armed car wash. But I happened to be right in the place of the greatest force in human history and one of the greatest victories. It would be, you know, the victory of the American forces over the uh, Iraqi forces uh, is up there with Hannibal. It's up there with what Caesar and Alexander did. But we didn't realize it. We didn't think about it. I certainly didn't think about it at the time. It was years later I realized, holy cow, I was right there. I saw it with my own eyes, or at least, uh, at least the headquarters of it. Um, we stopped trying because we thought we were done. Somebody, uh, Francis Fukuyama actually wrote a book called The End of History. You know, the Soviet Union had thrown in the towel. No one could challenge us. We were absolutely dominant politically, economically, and, of course, militarily, as we showed in, in, the, in the first Gulf War. And we just sort of assumed that nothing was ever going to change, assumed that our opponents were just going to give up, and assumed we could go on a glide path. And we did. And the generation uh, that, that led up to the Gulf War, you know, we're now run by cultural trust fund babies. Right. You know, everybody knows that, you know, the World War II generation, they beat the Depression and they beat Hitler. That's cool. The 60s generation put a man on the moon. They uh, kept Democrats from treating people inhumanly during the Civil Rights Revolution, a theme in American history, by the way. Uh, and what is the generation that runs things now, the generation that was bequeathed, uh, you know, an overpoweringly uh, powerful America? Uh, it has given us Iraq. It has given us the Wall Street meltdown. It has given us grinder. This is not an accomplished bunch of people. Um, so it's basically, uh, you know, the Hunter Bidens of America have taken over. They didn't build this stuff. They have no real interest in it other than what power it gives them. And no wonder we've gone downhill. You know, one of the things that struck me about the, um, the title of your book, you know, We'll Be Back, you are hopeful, you're optimistic, despite everything that you uh, realistically have noticed as far as the trajectory socially and politically and democratically, what gives you such hope that America can reverse course? I would love to be inspired along with you. Well, look, there's a lot of things that inspire me. America has huge advantages. For, for one thing, we've been bequeathed the greatest political document in human history, the uh, uh, Constitution. 
Uh, we have been bequeathed a great people. I got to see, you know, our soldiers in war zones and then and in, uh, uh, you know, disaster situations. I commanded most of the forces during the San Diego fire in northern San Diego uh, in 2007. And, you know, just to see these fantastic young people uh, completely, uh, just totally inspiring. What an honor that I had. Uh, I had a chance to lead them in the California Army National Guard. It's a great organization. Um you know, you look at what's happening in places like Virginia, where I happen to be right now, where normal people rose up and said, no, we're not going to teach our kids that we're racist because that's a lie. And no, you are not going to twerk in front of my, our kids and tell them that they're non-binary and all that other nonsense. No, you're not going to do it. We're going to elect Glenn Youngkin here in this blue state. Uh, the other thing I see that I'm very, very excited about is uh, Latinx Americans uh, are uh, now 50 percent Republican. Hispanic Americans, full of faith, flag, and family, ha- have chosen Republicans. The Democrats expected these people to be their serfs forever, a, a group that they could rely on, who who would be poor, you know, who would be fresh off the boat immigrants, not you know, a- excluded from the American dream, and they'd be a reliable bunch of votes in exchange for a few scraps from the Democrat table. But they said no. They said we're not doing that. We're not here to be your, you know, minions. We're going to make something of ourselves, and they did. And they and when you invest in America and see yourself as an American, suddenly you're a part of the Republican Party. The Democrat Party has nothing to offer you except maybe to castrate your kid to conform to the delusions of some suburban wine mom. Wow, hey, Kurt, what do you see as some of our nation's? biggest challenges. Is it the danger of communist China's expansion and quest for world dominance? Uh, The infectious ideological disease of socialism being spread by the World Economic Forum and others? Or even political division at home that could potentially lead to some form of civil war? All those things are uh, very grave dangers. Look, I'm optimistic. I'm also realistic. You have to look at the threat. Uh, objectively and dispassionately. I talk about them, and we'll be back, The Fall and Rise of America. I have two chapters on civil conflict. I have a chapter on national divorce. I have a chapter on uh, the kind of cultural wasting away that you're talking about. I have a, a, a chapter on China. And, you know, I look, I'm optimistic overall, overall but look, let's not pretend this is going to be easy. Let's not pretend there aren't threats. There are threats, and they are frightening. And we have to face them. We have to face them forthrightly. But, you know, we've got, like I said, huge advantages. We have great people. We have a great constitution. Uh, I, I think the American people want to avoid politics. But, you know, the, the, the progressives have made a mistake of uh, foisting politics upon people. And, yeah, I think- you know, they don't like what they see. Oh, no, definitely not. You know, we're nearing the end of the show, but I want to make sure I ask, how can people find out more about you and your book and where they can get it and everything else that would uh, help them be able to get this information as quickly as possible? Look, you want to go to Amazon, just don't screw around. Go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, get We'll Be Back, The Fall and Rise of America. I want to emphasize something. I write like a trial lawyer. I got to talk to 12 people who can't get off a jury, right? (laughs) Or they don't want to be, they're happy to do their duty as citizens, but you know, you got to tell them a story. You got to make it interesting. With young soldiers, you got to make it clear and you got to make it coherent. You got to give them a good reason for charging up that hill with fixed bayonets. 
And I was a stand-up comic as well. You've got to entertain. And that this book does that. I am not one of those cruise ship conservatives, Dr. Wendy. I am not one of those bow-tied virgin losers who's going to sit and talk to you about what Plato said. Though I, do, I don't talk down to people. There's Roman history in there. There's a lot of good stuff in there. But I'm not boring. I'm amusing. Every line, you're, look, you're a trial lawyer too. In a brief, every line has to hit because you only get and, 15 pages. Every line. And that hit. is where we will end it. I think that is tremendous. Thank you so much for joining us today. We need to take a short commercial break. Folks, please don't touch that dial. We have another segment right back after the break. We will be back in a flash. This is Today with Dr. Wendy. News cycle lowlights have no place here. You're listening to the headline highlights on Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. It's time for more news you can use. The headlines streamline. It's time for more Today with Dr. Wendy. Now here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Welcome back to Today with Dr. Wendy. This is Wendy Patrick. Larry, we have a fantastic, amazing uh very well published, I think that's the understatement of the show, guest on the other end today. Who do we have? Uh, Yes, Wendy. Dr. Warren Farrell is the author of books published in 17 languages. They include two award-winning international bestsellers, Why Men Are the Way They Are, plus The Myth of Male Power. Warren has been chosen by the Financial Times as one of the world's top 100 thought leaders. Dr. Farrell has appeared repeatedly on Oprah Today and Good Morning America, and he's been the subject of features on 2020 in Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, People, Parade, and The New York Times. Today we're going to be talking about a book penned by Dr. Farrell and Dr. John Gray, who was the author of Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Zenith, uh, Venus. And the book, the new book that he just came out with is called The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. So glad to have you on today, Dr. Farrell. I'm looking forward to speaking with both of you. And since I've lived 21 years in San Diego, um, even more so. Oh, perfect. Oh, for, for sure. You know, Dr. Farrell, I am just fascinated by the fact that you know so much about men and boys. And I'm doubly fascinated by how interesting it is to the world to learn more about the genders and how they are different, how they're complementary, how men and women bring different things to the table. And, you know, like Dr. Gray's Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. I mean, remember that I mean, blockbuster success. So, you know, regarding what you refer to as the boy crisis, I mean, that could mean a lot of different things. What does it mean in the way you write about it and the way you talk about it in your book? Yeah, one of the things I discovered is I was, you know, I was in the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City, and so I was speaking all around the world of, on women's issues. And in different times, um, um, a teacher in Japan, I remember coming up to me and saying, you know, um, I appreciate what you're saying, Dr. Farrell, but, you know, uh, about women's issues, but actually the boys in my class are having more problems than the girls. And I'd hear this in Australia and different places, and I started to put that on my radar. And today, um, in the 53 largest developed nations, 
boys are falling behind girls in every single academic subject, but especially in reading and writing, which are the two biggest predictors of success or failure. So I started looking at that data, which is from the um, uh, the United Nations major study on on those issues, and then started seeing that when it came to physical health and mental health, so for example, in mental health, um, when boys and girls are nine years of age, uh, they rarely commit suicide, and when they do, they commit suicide very uh, minimal, um, very equally. Um, but when they're between 10 and 14, I saw that the boys' suicide rate became twice that of girls, and then between 15 and 19, four times that of girls, and between the ages of 20 and 25, uh, about five and a half times that of girls. And so that got me looking at, you know, it's suicide. Well, two things. One is that almost nobody knew that. And then secondly, you know, what, you know, what happens to both males, either biologically or socially, um, between the ages of 10 and 25, that leads to that disproportionate number of um, boys versus girls committing things like suicide. And if that was the case, what about depression? And why was, you know, why were boys dying from um, opioid overdoses at a much higher rate than girls? And why were they street homeless uh, much more frequently than females were? And and it went on and on and on. And we, I had seen statistics say, that you know, in the past, sixty um, percent of the people that graduated from college were males and forty percent females, and now that was reversed. But what was not known in the culture was that um, that boys were um, that boys when that when they were admitted to college, they were much more likely to drop out. So in a couple of years from now, the statistics will be that two females will graduate from college for each male graduating from college. And the problem with that is not only for the boys, but also, you know, girls, especially girls who are becoming women who want to have children um, and looking for a very good, solid father. Women who have graduated from college are not usually searching for um, high school dropouts or college dropouts um, on unemployment lines or living in their parents' basements. Uh, This is when, when, you know, when boys don't do well um, or or women, um, Men don't do well. Uh, girls and women don't do well either. Wow. Warren, you, you touched on this. Is the crisis partially to do uh, regarding fathering? Like boys are growing up with less involved fathers or even absentee fathers and are more likely, as you said, to drop out of school, drink and do drugs, uh, become delinquent and end up in prison. So is it the lack of fathers in the household that's part of this problem? Well, I when the answer the brief answer is yes, um, and the but I didn't anticipate that answer when I submitted the boy crisis initial research to my publisher. I had ten I had outlined ten causes of the boy crisis and proposed to the publisher uh, that that I would do a chapter on each cause. Um, but the more I investigated, uh, the more I saw that more than anything else, the boy crisis resides where dads do not reside. Um, and so, mm-hmm. for example, um, when, a, when a boy is brought up in a female-only home and goes to a female-only school, there are problems. When a boy grows up in a home that is both male and female about uh, with an involved father and an involved mother, um, and then he goes to a home where there are female-only teachers or 90, 90% female-only teachers in elementary school, there are, you know, it makes, it's a, it has an impact, 
but it doesn't have uh, versus a school that has a significant number of male teachers in elementary school. Um, but it doesn't have a significant impact that the boy going from a mother-only home to a female-only school, having no male role models uh, that are constructive, often leads the boy to having a lack of structure, I found, and a lack of um, purpose, and not having a male that he can look up to as a, as a model for what he can be when he's an adult. What are some of the solutions that you see, maybe some more, maybe some of the broad solutions that we can begin to consider? I mean, you've done such a great job in really outlining some of what the research shows. Where do we go from here? Yes, well, the number one thing to do um, is to recognize that the, the number one solution to a lack of father involvement is father involvement. But then the, then the next question becomes, well, um, what is there that fathers contribute that is so of so much value? And how do we get a father involved if he isn't already involved? And the most important thing to understand there is that men, if you think of men, during every generation has had its war. And when men, when we told men, Uncle Sam needs you, men were willing to step up and die in order, in, in order to, 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 if they felt they were needed, if they were, felt they were needed to protect the country, to protect women, to protect children, to protect other men. And so when men are told we are needed, we're very likely to respond. But we haven't been telling men that they're needed, and part of the reason, as fathers, and part of the reason for that is we haven't known what fathers contribute that is so different from what moms tend to contribute on average, and sometimes those contributions are reversed. So dads, for example, are far more likely to do things like roughhousing, and from a mom's point of view, oftentimes roughhousing means she just has, feels like she just has one, one more child to monitor. <laughs> and the, um, but from, but what we didn't know, and what I didn't know before I started doing the research for the boy crisis, is that fathers that that roughhouse and dad, and dad's style ways, like saying, okay. You know, you can't stick your elbow in your sister or brother's eye anymore. And if you do, we'll stop roughhousing. And then the father enforces those boundaries. And if the children do that again, um, they stop the roughhousing. When fathers do things like roughhousing in that type of way, that willingness to stop the roughhousing that dads tend to do once they've given a warning um, leads to children being required to think of their sisters and brothers' perspectives or, or needs or feelings um, rather than just roughhouse by pushing their brother or sister out of the way. That creates empathy on the part of the children for their brothers' and sisters' needs and feelings and fears. And so no one, no father, I'm not, and I can't blame mothers for this because I've never heard a father say something like, you know, um, sweetie, I want a rough house with the kids because it will increase their empathy. Uh, and moms can't hear what dads don't say. And dads, I don't blame because one of the reasons that got me to write The Boy Crisis is I couldn't find in any of the literature or any of the parenting magazines anything that said to dads that, you know, when you do things like roughhouse in dad style way, that is you enforce boundaries of requiring the children to roughhouse in a way that is that is assertive but not aggressive, 
um, that you um, that you actually increase the children's empathy, you increase their social skills, you increase their postponed gratification, and postponed gratification is the single biggest predictor of success or failure. And so these were things that you know that I didn't know. And one of the things that inspired me to write the Boy Crisis was because. These are just not being talked about in the culture. Well, Dr. Farrell, we're getting a little bit, we're running out of time, but you said in your book, and correct me if I'm wrong, that of the six mass school shootings in America in the 21st century, the shooters have been dad-deprived. The six mass school shootings in which 10 or more people were killed, um, and those are the, the that we know the family background of, every single one of them has been by dad-deprived boys. And usually by boys not only living with their mother, but being in very um, conflictual relationships with their moms as well. So, you know, if we stop on that, it's been by boys, and it's been by boys that are dad-deprived, absolutely. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us. This is such important information we need to learn about and also impose the solutions. We want to thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for and Thank you, Doctor. And to our listeners, have a wonderful, safe weekend. Please join us next week for more Today with Dr. Wendy, Headlines with a Silver Lining. Have a great week and God bless you. Thank you for joining us for Today with Dr. Wendy. You can learn more about Dr. Wendy and how to become a guest or sponsor of the show by visiting wendypatrickphd.com. That's wendypatrickphd.com. Tune in every week at this same time as Dr. Wendy will engage and inspire you with an upbeat viewpoint on the highlights of the day. This has been Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.